Hey, I'm Adam. I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 276, A Christmas Story Movie Review. McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. We've got one last new episode before we take some holidays around here. So we decided to finish off season eight with one final Christmas movie celebrating a milestone anniversary. We're going to go back 40 years to 1983. We got Bob Clark's A Christmas Story starring Peter Billingsley, Darren McGavin and Melinda Dillon that we're going to get to. But before we do that, Derek, what pop culture have you been able to take in this past week, my friend? So, Chris, excuse me, I only had a chance to watch a couple of things because, as you mentioned, we're getting close to the holidays and I've been pretty busy both at home and at work. Uh, Got some Christmas vacations coming up, so got to prep for that, too. But anyway, uh, and unfortunately, and you have to shop for my Christmas gift. Oh, no, I already got that. Oh, nice. In any case, I only had a chance to watch two movies, neither of which are documentaries. Sorry. Um, One of which I sort of teased last week. So. Um, I had a chance to watch the second Dirty Harry movie from oh, 1973, yeah. Magnum Force, mm. and uh, it was good. This one, I did not really have very, uh, very, I didn't have a memory of it at all. Like, I think I mentioned last week when I watched the original Dirty Harry, I actually remembered a lot of it as I was watching it. I've definitely seen it two or three times before. I, I know I definitely have seen Magnum Force before, but I, I honestly didn't remember it at all. I didn't remember anybody who was in the cast. Um, Tim Matheson's in this, which I i mean, he's so young in this movie. I barely recognize him. His voice was more of the tip off. Robert Yurich is in this. I was like, holy cow, like I'm watching this movie going. I recognize a lot of these people, but they're just so much younger. Must and of have course, been Tim Matheson's first film. It was definitely one of his one of his earliest. Because, I mean, uh, Animal House was his big one. I mean, that was in 78. And this was before that. 73. Yeah. This one. Yeah. So. But no, it was good. It was really good. Um, I'm looking forward. Like I said, I have all five of the Dirty Harry movies on my recorder, so I'm going to get through them all over the Christmas break. But I had a chance to go back and watch Magnum Force last week. It was really good. And then brand new one just dropped on the streamers. Came mm-hmm. out, uh, I think it came out earlier this year. Uh, no, last year, 2022. It's the new iteration of Fletch. It's called Confess Fletch. And it stars John Hamm in the title role as Fletch. And let me tell you, it was great. I oh, loved wow. it. It was super good. I, at least I thought so. It was um it wasn't just John Hamm trying to do Chevy Chase. Apparently John Hamm uh, from what I was reading is is uh, a fan of the actual books, the Fletch no, like a, it's based on a series of novels mm-hmm. and apparently he's a big fan of the books and so he tried to draw inspiration from the books. But at least sort of acknowledge what Chevy Chase did as well. And so I think there was a a good balance where you don't just watch it and go, oh, you know, he's a poor man's Chevy Chase trying to imitate what he did in the 80s. But there's definitely a hint of it there. 
And uh, and I mean, I, I think John Hamm's great in most things he's in. So it was it was fun to see him in this role. And uh, no, I really enjoyed it. It was uh, I think it was on Netflix, if I remember correctly. And uh, I think you'd like it, Chris. You should give it a go. I know you're always asking for things to watch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you'll find that it even though it takes place in the here and now, it it, it touches on that same sort of feel as the Fletch movies from the 80s. So I would say give it a look. Hmm. I don't really know much about John Hamm. Wasn't he in like ad or what was that? Madman. Madman. And yeah. yeah, I never watched that, so I'm not familiar with him. I remember him doing a commercial on Saturday Night Live once that was John Ham's John Ham. Yeah. And it was like the toilet paper, but it was ham. In case yeah. you're like, you know, you're in the toilet and you feel like eating some ham. <laughs> There's always thought that was And funny. remember, if it feels like lunch meat, don't wipe your ass with it. <laughs> So, so so there's that. So, of course. Okay, so for my thing, I usually, you know, just kind of do it quickly. But I want to actually spend some time this week and get into something with you. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this or at least stressed how strongly that I feel about this. But I love the Bare Naked Ladies. I mean that both in the literal the sense or, as the yeah, well okay. as the band, Derek. So for the sake of this podcast, let's just focus on the band. So I've been a huge fan of Bare Naked Ladies since 1991. I was in university and I remember I bought a copy of their self-released cassette tape. It was called Bare Naked Ladies, obviously, and it was yellow and it had a drawing of a sandwich with a toothpick and, you know, with an olive on it. Mm -hmm. And there was five songs on the tape. I remember there was Be My Yoko Ono, Brian Wilson, Blame It On Me, If I Had A Million Dollars, and the fifth song was a cover of Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Right. (laughs) So when the tape was released in the UK, they dropped that song from the tape. But then I remember when Gordon came out, it was released through an actual record label and I loved it. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before in terms of bands. They're just so unique. And I think some people thought of them and still think of them as a bit of a novelty act. I was going to say, yeah, like a joke band, but no, they're the real deal. They're not. They never were. Like, they're so incredibly talented, especially musically. Like, I re- I remember around the same time they came out, Moxie Fruvis was pretty popular. You remember that? Came Spain, baby. Yep. Yeah. So to me, they were a bit of a novelty act. Definitely. Like, they did these goofy songs a cappella, and then they just went away. But Bare Naked Ladies were different, I think. And I remember back then... There was this TV station in Toronto that had a camera set up in a booth on the corner of the building. It was called Speaker's Corner. Now, Derek, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I do. But anyone else listening, especially from the United States, doesn't. But anyone could walk by and sit there. You could put a loony, a dollar coin, and you can get like three minutes to say whatever you wanted. Most people would like go and sit there and rant about politics or whatever was on their mind. And one day, and they put it on TV. It would be like a show that you would watch. And one day, these guys, this band, squeezed into the booth and they played their original song. It was the Bare Naked Ladies. And they did Be My Yoko Ono. Yep. And it got them some local fame around Toronto. And then they got hired to be one of the opening acts at the New Year's concert at Toronto City Hall. Remember they did that every year? Like Rock and Ronnie Hawkins was there and stuff. Yep. Yep. And the mayor at the time was June Rowland. She was this conservative family values hypocrite. And she wouldn't let them play there because of their name. Oh, my God. Like their name was offensive to the conservatives, right? 
And all it did was gain them press coverage and it just grew their following even more. And then in 2009, Stephen Page left the group. And if you think about it, like by all accounts, that should have been the end of them, you know, but it wasn't like they just, they've endured and they just released a new album in September of 2023. Anyway, the reason I mention all this, Derek, this past Saturday, my wife and I went to see them in concert. Nice. They were doing a Christmas show of all things. So I've introduced the band to my kids. They, they both, both my kids love the band. They love all their songs. So I wanted to take the whole family, but unfortunately they were at Casino Rama here in central Ontario. Kids aren't allowed in. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, not. I mean, it, it makes sense. It's a yeah. casino, but. So my wife and I went and we had great seats. We were like five rows from the stage. It was amazing. I've seen them once before. Um, my one son, he was about seven years old at the time. He went with me and we saw them at the Aurelia Folk Festival. It was his first concert and he loved them. Yeah, so did I. Nice. So I just wanted to share. There was one moment that I had at the concert. It's just something that stuck out to me. So I think one of the reasons why I've always loved this band so much is that they're positive and upbeat. That's always why I used to like Triumph as a band. I've mentioned that I love Triumph. Triumph, like all their songs were like inspirational. They always had a positive message. So Bare Naked Ladies, they're playing at the concert. I'm sitting there watching them and they played their newest song from their new album. It's called Loving Life. I don't know if you've heard of it, Derek, or if you've heard this song. I have not, but I will look it up after the podcast. I, I would am also strongly recommend that you and anyone listening to this podcast find the song and give it a listen. It's called Love and Life. Very rarely does a song hit a nerve with me, like, you know, like make an impact. But this one did. So I, I found myself, I'm sitting there and they sang this song and I don't know, I just started to get emotional and like, this doesn't happen for me very often, but you know, it just did like, as everyone knows, like life can be really hard sometimes, you know, it's hard, bud, you know, like really hard at times, but here they are, they're on stage and they're singing about how they're loving life. And there's like so much that we want to live it twice. And they're like, it's like pizza. We want another slice. Like there's just something about it that just hit me. It just made me take a, take a step back from, from everything, you know, from this whole roller coaster of life and just realize how amazing it could be if you look at it that way. Also, as another aside, I taught my last class tonight. If anyone listens to this podcast on a regular basis, you know, I'm a teacher. So I, I teach a class and it's on like gaining a professional edge. And I always stress the importance of positive thinking and trying to have a great attitude to take into your career. And I wanted to end the course on a positive note and kind of reinforce that message with my students. So I, I played the video for them of Love and Life and they just loved it. They, they, they actually were applauding at the end. So it was just really nice. So for me, top three bands of all time. I love the Bare Naked Ladies. I, I, I just love them. And um, we should maybe do that. Like our top five bands sometime, you know, that'd be kind of good. You know, yeah, who would be on my topic. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, bare naked ladies were on my thing. So, oh, also I have this. Here's your dad joke of the week. All right, Derek. So it's another Christmas movie this week. So that means one final Christmas joke for you. Okay. Okay. 
<laughs> Derek, what happened when the Grinch took Viagra? I don't know. His his junk turned green. He grew three sizes that day. Yikes. <laughs> and then the Grinch found the strength of 10 inches plus two. All I wanted for Christmas was a new intro. Get in the studio um, and record All right, then. okay, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Just last week, I weaned out Roger Moore. He was totally satisfied. I have no idea who that is. Penis reduction surgery. The absolute best documentary I saw all year was... Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. He sounds like a nice guy, right? I, I kind of walked into that one, didn't I? So, my friend, we, I mentioned at the top of the show, we're wrapping up season eight on the podcast this week. Uh, time to take some much needed holidays for both of us. So we decided to finish off the year with one final Christmas movie that's celebrating a milestone anniversary. And it was over to me to suggest a film. So I went with Bob Clark's 1983 Christmas classic, A Christmas Story. I actually like the fact as I was reflecting on this, that all four of our Christmas movies this year are what you might call polarizing. I think people either love them or hate them. There's no real... I think that's fair. There's no in-between on these ones. Like we did Love Actually and then Scrooged and last week we did Bad Santa and then obviously Christmas Story this week. I've talked to a few people this week, you know, about this podcast and it seems that everyone I've talked to And this is just anecdotal, but everyone either seems to love this movie or they hate this movie. My wife hates this movie. How can you hate this movie? I mentioned we had to watch this movie. I know. I mentioned, hey, we got to watch this movie for the podcast. She's like, oh, really? It movie sucks. So how about you, Derek? What camp do you fall into? Obviously, by your reaction, I can tell you're in more of the love it than the hate it side of a Christmas story. This movie is great. I don't even understand what you would like about this movie. Well, okay, no, that's not true. I can I can understand why some people might not like it, but most people, come on, it's like it's it's a Christmas movie. Had you seen it recently? Like, I mean, before having to rewatch it this not, week for the show. Is it, it, no. Do you watch it every year though at Christmas time? Not deliberately, but it is usually on regularly enough that I catch parts of it. Um, I know, and we'll probably get into this a little more. Um, TBS and TNT own the rights and usually for, I I don't think so much anymore, but they used to do 24 hour marathons from Christmas Eve to Christmas day. And when they were, when they used to do that, we would just sort of leave it on in the background all day long. So, but no, it'd been at least a year. Uh, I don't think, I don't remember watching it last year. So I'm going to say it's been two years since I've seen it in its entirety. I probably haven't seen it in maybe 25 years. I can never seem to find it anywhere at Christmas. Like, otherwise, yeah. I, I would definitely watch it every year. I least. was a little surprised that it was not readily available on one of the streamers mm-hmm. or even just on demand on one of the regular, like, cable channels. Uh, I, I Fortunately, I have the DVD, so I was able to just, you know, pull it. It literally had dust on it. That's how long it's been sitting there mm-hmm. unwatched. Um, but like you and I were talking about, like, you can rent it. It's five bucks, which, you know, it's fine. Everyone's got to get paid. But I was I was pretty surprised that it wasn't available at no additional cost. It's, it seems to me that this movie used to play on TV every year around the holidays, but I feel like lately it's just maybe fallen in and like into this no man's land. It's become somewhat of a forgotten film. Is that the case you think? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, 
I think, and we've talked about this on previous shows, uh, holiday movies are in theory, a good way for the people who put the money up for the movie to continue to make money over and over and over again, long-term, because if it's got longevity and it comes back on every year, they're getting royalty checks over and over again. So in the last decade, there's been a, 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 I believe there's been a stronger attempt to make better holiday movies that might stand the test of time and sort of have that repeat viewing power. And there's definitely a handful in the last 10 years that I think are, are on their way to becoming that. But like this one to me is, is one of those examples that every year it's going to be on. There's no, there's no doubt it will be on and, and enough people like it that they're going to keep reshowing it. Yeah. Like I say, I haven't seen it in maybe 25 years. So I didn't really, I remembered good things about it. And then I wasn't sure what to expect in some ways, like looking at it again after all these years, my God, this movie is incredible. It might be perfect. It might be an example oh, of a let's perfect. Not get carried away. It's it's good, but I don't think it's that good. Ooh, I don't know, man. I think it's easy to dismiss this as a simple Christmas movie. You know, it's called a Christmas story, obviously. But I think it's way more than that. It's about a forgotten time. It's about seeing the world through the eyes of a child. It's about human nature, all of which we're going to get into tonight. This movie is really good. I was shocked at how good it was so what do you say first so let's go back to 1983 for a couple of minutes shall we so sure. the, fil the film was released on november the 18th 1983 uh derek i'm pretty sure you can imagine the number one movie at the box office back in 83 well i gotta assume it's return of the jedi it was return of the jedi bounds. by a lot the second movie was tootsie it was actually released on december 17th of of the year before in 82 but it made most of its money in 83. Uh, number three was Flashdance, followed up by Trading Places and War Games. Octopussy. Solid list. Yeah, Octopussy, Staying Alive, Risky Business, Mr. Mom, and National Lampoon's Vacation. Rounded out the top 10. Pretty solid year. Chris, have you seen all 10 of those? Uh, I've seen every single one of those movies. Yeah, yeah, me too. How many of those have we done in the podcast? The top five we've done all those, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Staying Alive is maybe, you know, one of the worst movies ever made. So, yeah. I mean, you know, how it made money. It was like, I only saw parts of that on the movie channel and hated it. But uh, yeah, everything else I've seen. Yeah, we did war games on the podcast. We did trading places, Tootsie, Return of the Jedi. We haven't done Octopussy or Flashdance or Risky Business or Mr. Mom. We haven't done Vacation, have we? No, and it was cel it was celebrating a milestone this year, so we sort of yeah. missed out on that yeah. one. But there's nothing to say we can't do it next right. year. So A Christmas Story finished all the way down at number 53. Took in nineteen million dollars against a budget of three point three million. Although it did finish ahead of films such as Stroker Ace, Doctor Detroit, and Airplane Two, the sequel. Nice. Here's the thing with holiday movies, though, they never really do well on their initial theatrical release. Not usually. No, it's usually takes a year for people to sort of find the movie, and then it tends to be the next year or a couple years later when it starts to be into heavy rotation on TV. Uh, and and we hear this all the time, where it's like. A movie that didn't do well is picked up cheaply by a television network and they're able to run it at a minimal cost. And that's usually what what pushes it back into the spotlight and makes it a classic is the fact that it did not do well initially and they can get it for cheap. And I, I, I don't know this specific history, but I suspect that's probably what happened with this one. It probably didn't make a lot. And then it went on TV and bang, now everybody knows it. But. Yeah, definitely gained a following over the years. I think not a lot of people like flock to the theater to see a holiday movie. They just don't, 
right? This is like the, the time of year that the Oscar darlings are floated out there, you know, but not just that, like people tend to watch holiday movies at home, I think, you know, on TV. Like that's yeah, the tradition, yeah. right? Well, you know, I mean, I think you're right. And I think that the the sort of the exception of that is around the holidays. A lot of times people with with large families and little kids want to have an opportunity to go out with their children and going to see a kid's movie is is a way to do that. I think that the real challenge and I can't speak to this as well as you can is for many years, a lot of kids movies were just awful for adults. And so, you you know, the parents are like don't go see this. You're going to hate it to, to the other parents. And so, you know, end up not ends up not working. But when you do get one that's sort of good for the whole family, those are the kind of ones that tend to do better. I don't want to say do well, because it's it's a rarity that a holiday movie actually does well. The year comes up. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you so you really like this movie, obviously. You think I do. But I, I was a Johnny completely. I don't think I ever saw this until I was like maybe 20. Mm. Like like I have no memory of seeing it before I went to university. And it's interesting because you, you like it. But when I say that, I think it's perfect. You're like, OK, don't go that far. That's too much. Well, we can get into it. And, yeah. and some of that comes from the the time period from which it is set. Mm -hmm. Some of those details don't age well because we're you know, it takes place in approximately 1940. We're just past 2020. Like in 80 years, things progress. And some of the things from 80 years ago are just like you look at it with today's lens and you're like, not cool, man. And sort of a little bit of that's what I don't care for. But I'm not going to I'm not going to sully the whole movie over a couple of little details like that. For the most part, I like it. I don't I wouldn't say it's perfect, but I just think know. the way it the way the characters are, are presented, the way that the movie was cast, the script, the way it goes from scene to scene. I think the whole thing is just I can't imagine it being any better than like there's no room for improvement on this film. That's sort of the reason I I mentioned that I want to. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the cast. We always like to. So sure. we'll, we'll start with Peter Billingsley. And I remember him. He got started doing commercials back in the 70s. So I remember watching him on TV doing these Hershey syrup commercials. He was messy Marvin. And the idea was that the Hershey syrup was so easy to use. Even messy Marvin didn't make a mess with it. And then. Nice. I remember seeing him in a movie I watched. It was on the movie channel when I was a kid. It was called Death Valley. It starred Paul Lamatt. It was about a serial killer stalking this family on vacation in Death Valley. I'm not exactly sure who goes on vacation to Death Valley, but you know, it's pretty hot there, but whatever. And Wilford Brimley was also in that movie. And, and we like him around here because I'm currently the same age as Wilford Brimley when he started in Cocoon. So I'm getting old, man. Um, Peter Billingsley was also on the show Real People. Remember that show, Derek? I do. Skip Stevenson? Yes. Yeah, there was Skip Stevenson, Sarah Purcell, and John Barber. And it was like one of the first kind of reality shows that came out. I remember they used to go all across America to find like interesting people and do these like short stories on their lives. And Peter Billingsley joined the show in 1982. And... A little known fact, actually, is his mom is cousins with Barbara Billingsley, June was, Cleaver. From yeah, Luda I was going to ask you that. I figured no. you would have that trivia at your fingertips there. Yeah, and of course, I mean, you know, she was in Leave it to Beaver, but for me, she was the jive-talking lady in Airplane, you know? Remember? And she was the voice of Nanny on The Muppet Babies, depending oh, on nice. how old or young you might be. Nice. I, don't know, I, still, I still like Airplane. 
hang loose blood. She got to yep. catch up on the rebound or the med side. Oh man, she was great. <laughs> <laughs> but but for Peter I, uh, Billing, Peter Billingsley, I, I say, for Peter Billingsley, it's <laughs> yeah. like and and obviously in more recent years. Well, I mean more recent than than mm-hmm. this. And um, he was he was in the movie Elf, John Favreau's Elf with Will Ferrell. He plays one of the um, one of the the toy making elves, the the supervisor. And then when Favreau did Iron Man. He has a small part in Iron Man as well, just a very small part. He's the guy when uh, Jeff Bridges is yelling at him and he's like, what do you mean you can't make this smaller? Tony Stark built this in a cave. And he's like, I'm not Tony Stark. It's like, no, you're Peter Billingsley. So, again, he's 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 worked. He's, uh, you know, he's done OK. And then they just did a uh, a sequel to this. A Christmas Story Christmas came out last year. Oh, did you watch it? I, I haven't watched it yet. Watch it. No, I was like, oh, well, I'll watch it on demand. Yeah, you got to rent it. I'm like, come on, man. I pay a subscription for these services. Just give me the movies I want. So, yeah, I think of all the stuff he's done, like before and after, after not so much, but he's probably best known for this movie. I would think. For most oh, people. I would think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's got like roles have got to be tough to come by for child actors. I, I would think especially for him because he was such a distinctive looking kid. You know, it must be yeah. hard for him to. But I think he did some like producing and stuff behind the, the scenes as well. But I want to talk a little bit about the parents, because I think sure. maybe that's the best thing in the whole movie. I I, I, I just love the parents. They might I, be yeah. the nicest parents ever in a movie. There's just something heartwarming about them. I don't know. You like them? I do. And I, I think it's sort of one of the themes that you touched on that I think we will retread on over and over again is the fact that because the story is told from the point of view of the child, I think you get a very idealized look at what how he remembers his parents looking back. Like you always remember the fondness of the best times. Uh, my only sort of beef, and I mean this is in quotation marks, mm-hmm. small b beef, is I always thought the dad was a little bit too old. I thought that he did a great job. Yeah. Even as a younger yeah. person, I was like, that dad looks a lot older than the mom and a lot older than those two boys. But again, mm-hmm. you love who you love, so I'm not going to sweat it. It's... Uh, you know, I don't think that was really a particularly important detail in the in the movie or the story. They don't ever talk about their ages. I think we're just supposed to hand wave it and go, let's just assume the parents are the age of parents and move on with it. And that's what I've always done. But Well, let's start with the dad, Darren McGavin. And he he did some movies, like mostly he did TV stuff. He's probably mm-hmm. best known in Night Stalker, that Kolchak show. He was also Murphy Brown's dad in the 80s too he was the dad in billy madison that's where i oh, was right yeah. him more I, recently i remember uh, him i'm a little bit older so i remember him from the, there was this disney movie it was called no deposit no return he used to play on the movie channel when i was sure. a kid it was like about these inept kidnappers i always remember him from that but i feel like he's perfect in this movie like yeah he maybe he seems like he's a little too old i don't know but they originally considered jack nicholson for the role I oh, think, no, I think Darren McGavin was perfect. I, I don't know. I, he certainly did a great job. Yeah, no, I, as far as his performance, I have no beef with it whatsoever. The, the, again, my only very small sort of criticism was just, I just thought he looked a little bit too old to be that kid's dad, but, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dwell on it, even though I'm dwelling on it. I, I love <laughs> how he battles with the furnace. There's that. Yeah. There's just like a cloud of profanity, which still hangs over Lake Michigan. So good. And his pride when he wins his prize, that leg lamp. Fragile. It's Italian. (laughs) And then 
I, even the, at the end, when he's got the Red Rider rifle hidden behind the desk, you know, like, I don't know. I, I love the scene when he's coaching Ralphie on how to load it at the end. And he's like, it's almost like this rite of passage, you know, between the, the father and the son. It's very authentic. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably what I like the most about the parents. I think I feel that they're very authentic. Yes. Uh, well, I agree. Uh, I think also part of the reason love it or hate it is that, um, you know, it's this slice of life from this this long ago period. And obviously the older the movie gets, the longer ago it was where you had more of what used to be the traditional you know, the man goes out and does the work and the wife stays home and raises the kids and makes dinner and all the rest of that jazz. And despite whatever sort of modern take on that dynamic you have, you you have to at least recognize that at this point, at this period in time, this this was how things were. And it seems, at least through the memory of this child, that everyone was happy doing what they were doing. And um, no, I think the parents were were great. Going back to the BB gun for a second, mm-hmm. though, I, I one of the things I was reading in the notes after was, in, in the, through the course of the movie, uh, Ralphie asks all these different people for the BB gun for Christmas, but he never specifically asks the dad for the gun. And obviously the dad's smart enough to have overheard him asking for it. But one of the one of the fan theories was in the scene where Ralphie near the beginning of the movie sneaks into the parents bedroom and he puts the ad for the BB gun in the magazine. And he's like, when my mom grabs her look magazine, she'll be reading the thing. And then he gets called down for dinner and if you pay attention, he actually doesn't put the magazine back in the right place. He puts it on the dad's bed instead of the mom's bed. So the fan theory is that's how the dad knew he wanted it. I was like, oh, true or not, it's an, it's an interesting little detail yeah. that I never picked up on until I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. But but I did like the fact that he never specifically asked his father for it. But honestly, I got to think that's more of the dynamic of how a household would work back then where it's it's it was almost like the little kids almost always seem to have this sort of fear factor of the father where it's like, if I have questions about stuff, I'm going to mom and Mm -hmm. mom's going to bring the question to dad. So, but anyway, you know, you watch these older movies and you, you're reminded of how things used to be for better or worse. And, uh, you know, how things have changed versus how some things have stayed exactly the same. So you just mentioned the mom. I want to talk about her. Melinda Dillon. I loved her. Counters of the third kind. That's what I I remember from. I loved her in this. I think she might be my favorite part of this whole movie. When she wraps Randy up in the snowsuit and the gloves and the hat, like, like any good mom, you know, she's got to overdo it, right? In order to keep her kid warm. Yep. I, I just, I couldn't even put my finger on what it is about her. She's just this incredible actress. Um, she's almost improvisational in her style of acting, which probably came from her improv work in Chicago when she was starting out, but... One of the most unique actresses I think I've ever seen on film. There's this vulnerability, but also this sensuality about her. Like, she's just incredibly unique. Um, I think directors tended to focus on her chest a little bit too much at times. If you recall Close Encounters, like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. she was always brawless in the scenes. And then she did that long nude scene in Slapshot. If you remember when she was in bed with um, with Paul Newman. But I feel like her talent was just undeniable. Like, she was great. She was nominated for a Tony when she started out in Broadway for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She was twice nominated for Best Supporting Actress Oscar, Close Encounters in 77, and Absence of Malice in 81. She was also the mom in Harry and the Hendersons. I wasn't oh, a yeah. huge fan of that movie, though. 
I haven't seen that movie in, geez, since the 80s when it came out or the early 90s, whenever it came out. Mm. I I think one of the, 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 the best parts of this movie, one of the strongest parts was how the movie explores human nature. And oh, for sure. I think she's the best example of this. I love this when she's got the soap in Ralphie's mouth. Life boy soap. Of course, it's the king of mouthwashing soaps. Mm-hmm. And she sends him off to bed. And she gets this curious look on her face and she tastes the soap. Yeah. It's like that curious nature people have. I just love it in that scene. It's really minor, but it's it's kind of poignant. You know, I, I don't know. I really like that. So um, let's talk about some of the kids. I guess in the movie too. I thought Zach Ward was amazing as Scott Farkas. Not Scott, Scott Farkas. One of the best bullies in movie history. I mean, he was so good. He and I used to follow each other on Twitter before it became a a cesspool and I had to leave. And I think he was actually once named the best Christmas screen villain of all time. He beat it with a Grinch. Nice. (laughs) It was pretty good. Um, one kid that stood out to me when I was watching this was Scott Schwartz. So he was Flick, the kid that stuck his tongue on the pole. Yeah. So he, Scott Schwartz, was um, in a movie called The Toy with Richard Pryor that and Jackie That one I remember Gleason. very well. Yep. Yeah. I saw it in the theater when it came out. It came out in 82, the year before this. And then after a few years, he had trouble finding work. So he went into adult films. Yeah, I, I remember for the long time, the urban legend was the kid from a from a Christmas story does porno movies. And then you're like, well, technically, yes, it's not the kid you think. And from what I understand, the movies were very soft core, but uh, still, I guess on its face, true. No, he he started out doing like non-sexual roles in the adult films, but it did progress in into, into a bit more. I remember... He he was really open about it. I remember I saw an interview once with him and he was talking about it and he was saying like it's a lot more difficult than you think <laughs> doing yeah. that stuff because he mentioned how like the parts don't always work when they're supposed to and, and he was just very candid about things. I I thought it was really interesting. Um, I think it's 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 got to be hard for a lot of these child stars to to make a living, you know, once they start to grow up. Because nobody wants to hire them anymore because they don't look the, like they did when they were kids, you know? So, interesting. Uh, Gene Shepard, I want to talk about too. So, the movie's based on a series of short stories and radio monologues that were written and performed by Gene Shepard. And he does the narration in the film. He also has a cameo. He's the, um, the man in line to see Santa at Higby's. Remember when he says, hey, kid. Oh, he's like the lines back yeah, there. Yeah, the, the, this is the end of the line. Like the starter line's way back there. He So he put a bunch of his short stories together into a book. And he called it, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And they use that as the basis for this screenplay. Um, he wrote, co-wrote it, the screenplay with Bob Clark. And maybe, like, maybe just me. Like, I feel like the narration from this movie was 100% the inspiration for The Wonder Years. What do you think? Oh, it totally was. I read yeah. that in the notes. Yeah. Like, it just, you, as soon as you're watching, you're like, the, the Wonder Years is totally drawing from this whole thing. So, um, and then the director, Bob Clark. He was a very original guy, <laughs> you could say. So his first film that he made was called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things from 1972. It was a horror comedy, really. And then he did Black Christmas up here in Canada with Margot Kidder. 
and he went on to write and direct Porky's in 1981. So you could argue that was probably the single most influential movie in launching the whole 80s teen sex comedy genre, you know. And he also directed Rhinestone. I don't know if you're familiar with that film. I don't. I'm looking up his IMDb right now. It was like, a musical. Half of these movies. It was a musical oh, yes. with Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, yeah. It's still Sylvester Stallone was awful in it, by the way. It's that is one guy that shouldn't go anywhere near a musical. But you know, that probably goes without saying. But I just think it's interesting that the guy that wrote and directed Porky's also made a Christmas story. It's like a dichotomy for a filmmaker, don't you think? Yeah, no kidding. So but crazy. I imagine that uh, Porky's probably made enough money that, you know, they were like, well, you know, the guy made some cash on the last movie. Let's let's give him a little bit of freedom because that's usually how Hollywood works, right? It's all about dollars and cents. What have you done for me lately? How much money did you make for me last time? Let's see if we can replicate that. So, mm. you know, in that case, maybe we can say if it wasn't if there was if there was no Porky's, there would be no Christmas story. Mm, true. Is that too much of a stretch? I no, don't know. No, maybe not. I want to talk about a couple of the iconic scenes in this movie. Hang on, I, I want to just back up for a quick second. You yeah. were talking about the narrator, Gene Shepard. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, most of the time, and I know this is a sort of a hot take and unpopular opinion, but I generally like a movie with a narrator, as long as it's done well or it's done in a way that's clever. And there are some really good examples of that. And I think that's potentially a, a topic for a future show. We could talk about movies with the narrator. Mm. But I think that in this movie, you really need it. Like for the for the the setup to work, the fact that it's being told from the point of view of a child, you need the adult voiceover to just reinforce a little bit that, yes, the movie is what the child remembers, but the ad, it's the adult looking back upon it. And I think that that works really well and then obviously it worked well enough like we said that it, it spawned the whole gimmick for the wonder years but it's so easy for an, uh, a narrator in a film to just go off the rails and essentially ruin a movie where they just over explain stuff and i think that with this one it works really well in part because it's that um nostalgia right it came out in the 80s but it's a movie about the 40, so you sort of need someone to bridge that gap because that's that's a fairly big gap. Like young people in the 1980s are probably not going to have a familiarity with what things were like in the in the early 1940s. So you sort of need to spoon feed them a little bit. But uh, it, like I said, it it could have gone very wrong very easily. But this is one of those great examples of where it works. And I think that you need it. I don't think the movie works the same way without it. It would be like kids now having to be educated about what it's like growing up in the 80s. Oh, man. Now I feel hard to believe that. (laughs) Sorry to put that in perspective. Uh, So, yeah, I want to talk about a couple of of, of scenes in the in the in the film because there's so many good ones. We mentioned the leg lamp briefly. I love how he comes running in. He's like, I won. I won. (laughs) Like you mentioned, he looks at the crate and it's like fragile must be Italian. Like he just brushes it off. And then they get this lamp. It's like the most tasteless thing ever, but he's just beaming with pride. So he puts it right in the front window. And then much to the chagrin of his wife too, obviously. I love when he goes out into the street and he's like, honey, you should see what it looks like from out here. 
<laughs> and then Ralphie, there's a really funny, funny moment there where the kid runs his hand up the leg. He's like, wow. I noticed and that. And his mom slaps his and hand away. And the mom away. keeps slapping his hand away more than once. <laughs> and I, I like it too, like later in the movie when the, when it breaks and he's trying to get it back together and he can't. And the wife is in the background and she's giggling. And again, yes. I just, I love that whole like sort of authentic nature of the, of, of the, of the movie. You know, you've got this, like you mentioned, this subservient wife in the forties and she's really laughing at her husband when he's not looking. <laughs> I thought was kind of neat. I don't know. I thought that was pretty good. The, um, the scene with the tongue on the pole. So they yeah, actually, that's, that's the iconic scene. It really is. And, and the way that they did it was they put this plastic cover over the pole and then they ran this tube up to this little hole and it act and they had a, this like machine attached to it. So it was like suction. So that's what held his tongue to the pole was a suction. But anyway, I love when he sticks his tongue on it and all the kids just take off. They just leave him. And, and it's, and then the fire department shows up. Like, wouldn't you just take like a cup of warm water? And pour it on his tongue. I would think so. It would come like off. That, like, yeah. what's the fire department doing there? So, I don't know. Probably, oh, there's so many good scenes. I don't know which one would be my favorite. But when Randy is eating his dinner. <laughs> See, I, I didn't like that. Again, like, as someone who doesn't have kids, that may be nostalgic for parents. Oh, I, I've been there. I get that. But for me, I, I just thought it was dumb. I think I, get, I, I like it because I can relate to it because I can never get my youngest son to eat anything. At dinner time, so uh, there's that. But when the mom makes him act like a piggy and eat his food off the plate, like the kid's laughter is just so genuine. And I really, I think what I liked about it was the joy that the mom and the boy share together in that scene is really authentic. So I yeah. think, I think that, like I say, that's what I like the most about the parents and probably the movie in general. Just everyone's just really authentic. I also, I love the fight scene. There is maybe nothing better in life than having a bully get his due. Yeah. So when Scott Farkas, you know, oh man, when he picks on Ralphie for the last time and Ralphie snaps and he's just so mad, he just overpowers him and just beats the snot of him. Deep down, all bullies are chicken shit. They are. And yep. maybe the best part of this whole scene, again, is the authenticity of it. Because what got me was... Not the scene, like not the fight, but, you know, it would have been easy, I think, just to let Ralphie beat him up and just end the bullying nice and clean. But that's mm -hmm. not what Bob Clark does. Instead, he has the mom come in and pulls Ralphie off of him and, and the kid snaps back to reality. And when he does, he just starts crying. He's like bawling his eyes out and he would because he, he's not a fighter. He's right. just a kid standing up for himself and then he he's looking at his mom's eyes and there's all these emotions flooding over him. It's just, it's this deeply authentic moment. So I just, and I love how she handles it too. Well, and one of the things that I sort of maybe didn't pick up on as clearly, or, or it was a little, uh, because I was watching it more closely this time for the podcast is he, he's not worried about getting in trouble from the dad for being in a fight. He's worried because he said all the bad words. And I thought that was interesting because I, in my mind, I'd always just assumed it's like, well, I got in a fight and my, my mom's going to tell my dad when my dad gets home, my dad's going to be mad that I got in this fight. And it's like, it's an interesting sort of look at the, you know, the values, if you will, of that time period. It's like 
two young boys getting into it and having a fight, boys will be boys. We're not really going to worry about it. But my kid said all these bad words. That's a problem. So I, uh, I guess I never really just I never picked up on it or I don't remember picking up on it in the past. But that, that sort of struck me as as it stood out to me this time more than I expected it to. No, I think that's a good point. I also like the fact that she doesn't hide it from the dad, you know, which would have been yeah. the easy thing to do. Like not the right thing because she's not a liar. So right. she tells him, but she just brushes it off and she knows him so well. She can distract him by talking about football. Yeah. You know? And there's just this quick moment where she just flashes Ralphie a look. And it's that connection that she has with her son. It's just, it's just there. It's unspoken. It's just perfect. Oh, so mm-hmm. good. Um, I also want to mention the the radio show, Little Orphan Annie, when he sends away for the decoder ring. Oh, I love it, that. It finally comes in the mail. He listens to the radio show and he gets the uncoded message. And it turns out to be a commercial message to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> perfect lesson learned be for the sure kid. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so Derek, I have a question for you. What the hell is Ovaltine exactly? Have you yeah, ever had know. it? Have you ever no, tried? Is, isn't it like a diet supplement or like a? It's like a, a breakfast drink full of vitamins or something. I, I, I always know. seem to recall it was like maybe I'm mixing it up with Slim Fast. That's maybe what I'm. Yeah, thinking. yeah. I think Ovaltine was more like chocolate milk powder, but like malt flavored or something. But it, I, I want to think that it had some nutritional value because I know they gave it to kids. But anyway, back in the 40s, they freaking gave kids cigarettes. Who the hell knows? <laughs> Good point. I, I love the bit on Seinfeld when Jerry writes the joke for Kenny Banya. And he's like, what's the deal with Ovaltine? The jar is round. The cup is round. They should call it Roundine. <laughs> and then Banya's like, that's gold, Jerry, gold. <laughs> that's what I always remember about Ovaltine. <laughs> and, and that that sequence where he, he decodes it and then he's like, a crummy commercial. And he's just so disappointed. Honestly, in my household, whenever we're watching TV or listening to radio and a commercial comes on at the most inopportune time, what, inevitably someone says, a crummy commercial. And like we, we try and do it in the same tone as Ralphie. So that, that line out of context has stood the test of time in my house. It's just, it's one of those little tiny references that's not the biggest part of the movie, but it's just stuck with us, which we thought was really funny. Nice. The department store Santa. We're going to just touch base on it because I got to tell you, sitting on Santa's lap can be a horrifying experience for some kids. I have the pictures to prove it. (laughs) My youngest son used to scream his head off, but I love the way they depict the whole experience here. The elves like grab the kids and like flip them around and toss them down this slide. It's like they're just processing them through this assembly line almost. Yep, yep. And then when Ralphie stops at the top of the slide to tell Santa like what he really wants, that look, that huge smile. I think that's the picture that's most associated with this movie. Yeah, it's on the cover of the 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 newer versions of the yeah. DVD have that cover. Yeah, it is. And then uh, I like Santa's like. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. And then uses his boot to push him down the slide. Ho, ho, (laughs) ho, as he pushes him down the slide. I love how Bob Clark captures this scene. It's like this whole surreal moment. And and it really can be a surreal experience for kids. You know, again, it's that whole authenticity of this this thing. So um, when Ralphie wakes up on Christmas morning, he looks out Mm -hmm. his window the entire world is covered in icicles. It's almost as if 
the whole world is sparkling. And again, it struck me. It's like it's like the wonder of seeing Christmas through the eyes of this idealistic child. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, that to me was like, if you haven't figured it out by now, like that's the bang you over the head. With yeah, like, so good, you know? And it's just like, he he's just a kid that just wants one thing, his favorite Christmas present, you know? And, you know... It, I, I also like when they're when they're like all ripping open the, the the gifts and they're ripping open the wrapping paper, you know. And and also I notice the dad appears to be more than just a little bit hungover. In that, oh, scene. you think that's why? Yeah, I, I, I don't. That's what I thought. Maybe I mean my parents don't drink, so I never had the the hungover dad when I was younger. So maybe maybe I just never really clicked that that was it. I always just assumed the dad was tired because I know. When I was a kid, my dad worked a lot and he always woke up really early in the morning to go to work. And so he was always tired. So that that I just assumed it was that he, the dad's just tired. And this is a day when he didn't have to go to work. And he's just like, oh, OK, I'm sort of. But but that makes a lot of sense, because then mm-hmm. later they're drinking the wine. So mm-hmm. who knows? maybe there was another bottle. The parents got into it the night before. Yeah, who knows? But uh, I just thought it was interesting when, you know, Ralphie gets done and he's all disappointed. And the dad's like, well, Wait, there's what's what's over there behind the desk? And then the wife's like, what? He's like, well, Santa probably brought it. Yeah. And, and they're just like the whole connection. Then he finally connects with the kid. Yeah. You know, it's like, like I said, it was almost like that rite of passage, you know, like I passing stuff along to your kids is something every parent does. I do it. You know, I make my kids watch Happy Days and Star Wars and stuff, you know, like we all do it in different ways. And then. Obviously, the perfect way to end it is he goes out and shoots his eye out, of basically, course. You know, with the recoil from the gun, I guess, is what it did, right? Like, it knocked No, I was reading off. about this. They were saying the reason, the, the most common mm-hmm. reason this would happen is that the BBs are round, as opposed to, like, a normal bullet from a gun, which uh, is, is more, um, like, con- conical shape, like, comes to a point. Right. Whereas a BB is round. So if it, when it hits something solid, it's more likely to ricochet in an unexpected direction. And most of the time, it's kids with BB guns. They tend to stand way too close to the target. So the likelihood of the the BB ricocheting off of whatever it is they're trying to shoot and coming back at them is actually much higher than than they would expect. And sure enough, that's because the the target thing he's shooting at is like a flat metal plate. So it's like, of course, it's not going to go through that. It's going to just ricochet and bounce back. And that's, I believe that's what's supposed to have happened is it literally bounced back, hit him in the face and knocked the glasses off. And that's another thing. For some reason, I thought it was the BB that broke the glasses. Then I'm watching it again tonight and I was like, or yesterday, and it was like, oh, he steps on them. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. That's right. And then he lies and says it was an icicle. And then his mom, she buys it. And I love how he breaks the fourth wall. Oh my God, that's one of the best parts of this movie. He turns and smiles to camera and then immediately turns back and right right back back in character. What For a, a little perfect, kid, that was yeah. Great it was like a perfect use of breaking the fourth wall, if ever there was one. And so, obviously, the neighborhood dogs come in, eat the turkey, and they have to go to eat. So it's Christmas, so everything's closed. So everything is closed except the local Chinese restaurant. And the waiters sing "Deck the Halls with Boughs of Hari," and I'm going to assume that that's probably the scene that you thought was problematic. That uh, again, a little bit. Uh, well, not a little bit. Do you think that bad. scene was racist or like, racially uh, I think insensitive? Looking back on it from today without context, yes. But I don't think it was done to be racist 
when it was put together. But again, it, it sort of falls back on that trope of, you know, why is this funny? It's funny because this person doesn't look like me and sounds different. And, you know, not cool, man. But what? in the course of the scene, the mm -hmm. manager actually comes out and tries to correct them, which I thought, OK, that to me sort of saved it a little bit. I I thought when Again, I'm not going to dwell on it. it yeah. It's a product of its time. Sure. It's a product of the 80s that reflects back on the 1940s. So there's going to be stuff like that in it. It's just like it, it, it was probably accurate for the time. Even with that scene, though, the one thing that struck me with this movie is this movie actually has quite a bit of diversity in it. Like, oh, I, I'm going to disagree with you. So, on that one. so the dream sequence at the beginning when the robbers are coming in the backyard there were several black actors in the scene. There's multiple black children in the classroom, which I it kind of stood out to me because I thought it was surprising because this is supposed to be in northern Indiana in the 40s, mm -hmm. you know? So, so I think that there's some diversity in the cast. It was obviously done on purpose by Bob Clark. Yeah, and, and again, I, I think... As much as someone watching today is going to go, hey, there's a lot of white people in this movie. If it's someone thinking back to their childhood in the 40s, a young white kid, chances are th their mind, everything is whitewashed because their community probably was predominantly white anyway. Uh, again, not to not to forgive the concept, but at the same time, if you're like if you're telling a story about a, a white community, of course, it's going to be mostly white people. So, again, it is what it is. It's it's not. It's not something that's going to get the. I would hope it's not something that's going to get the movie banned from your TV station or your movie mm -hmm. theater. But you know, it's 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 a slice of life, right? You make a movie about a certain time period. Certain people are and are not going to be in it because they were or were not present in that time period or in that location at that time period. Mm -hmm. We mentioned uh, how it did at the box office wasn't great, but this film was actually nominated for eleven Genie Awards. These are the Canadian Oscars. For anyone I didn't know. realize it counted as a Canadian movie, but I guess it's Bob yeah. Clark Canadian. Yeah, well, because the, the film was partially produced in Canada. It was partially shot in Canada, too. By the way, the scenes at the, the school, the school mm -hmm. was actually at Victoria School in St. Catharines, Ontario, which was right around the corner from where I used to live when I went to university. Oh. The school was right there. It's still there to this day. That Did you ever school. go stick your tongue on the flagpole? I never stuck my tongue on the flagpole, but like I walked by the school almost every day. Like they shot that there. They shot a lot of scenes around Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, the scenes of downtown of their town were all done in Cleveland, like Digby's. Yeah, that I know. Or Higby's yeah. um, department store and stuff was all in Cleveland and the, the parade and stuff. But other than that, they did a lot of it in um, in Canada. He same thing with Porky's. Porky's was like produced in Canada as well. Even yeah, though I knew I knew Porky's counted as Canadian yeah. content. Uh, so interesting. So yeah, um, so it was nominated for eleven Genie Awards. It won two. It won uh, best achievement in direction. Bob Clark. He was actually tied <laughs> in Canada. We're so kind. We're so nice. Yeah. We're so apologetic. We have ties in our awards. He tied with David Cronenberg for Videodrome. And okay. best screenplay was Bob Clark and Gene Shepard and Lee Brown. But nice. yeah, it was nominated for 11. That's fair. So. Um, before we uh, before we move on, I yeah. want to just uh, look back on and talk about the flashback scenes or the dream sequences. Mm -hmm. So this is something that I, I always liked as as, you know, as a younger person and now watching it again is when it's the story of an older person reimagining re his youth and then the youth imagining what he was imagining at the time. It's sort of that double level. It's like inception. It's the dream within the dream. And it's, uh, 
because they were always so over the top and hilarious, just the way they would be for a, a, if a little kid imagined. You talked about right. the scene at the beginning where where the robbers are coming to get them and oh, Black Bart. And I love that they have so Ralphie's all dressed up and he has the gun and he's like got the chewing tobacco and he's like spitting out the chewing tobacco because that's how they would have done it on TV or in the movies. And I was reading that. Of course, in the 80s, they literally gave him chewing tobacco for the first couple of takes, and then he started getting really sick, so they changed it to raisins because they needed something that would have that bright color. And it's like, yeah, genius, you think? You maybe shouldn't have given the 10-year-old tobacco? What's wrong with you? Like, holy cow. Jeez. But uh, I love – so it's like obviously – I love in that scene too, that, that opening scene, where the robbers are coming in and they're crawling down the tree – yeah, it's almost like like I don't know how they did that. If they did it in like sort of sort of reverse angle or something, and had them like it was it was interesting watching how they how they did it, and I was trying to figure out how they shot it, and I couldn't figure it out. It almost seemed to me again, I'm not a technical movie person, but it almost seemed to me like they didn't show you every frame. It's like we only showed you every other frame because it sort of felt like that that old school crank movie camera kind of thing where it's not, the movement isn't as smooth. Mm -hmm. That's a little always bit how sped I, up and strobe. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I did like that when, after he had, he had shot the bad guys and they were dead, they had the X's over yes. their eyes like yeah. they do in, in cartoons. So that was good. And then my favorite flashback is the one when, uh, after his mom washes his mouth open mm -hmm. with soap for, uh, you know, after he says the word only, I didn't say fudge. Um, and he's like, you know, one day, maybe I would go blind from this and then they'd regret it. And he shows up and he's blind and they're like, oh, Ralphie, whatever could tell us what we did. And then he's like, it was so poisoning. And they're like, oh, the parents are over the top crying. And then it cuts back to uh, to Ralphie as the little kid in the bed. And he's like, just got this giant grit on his face. Yeah. Like, yeah, that'd show them. Yeah, and I got after, them. After crying all that time, it's yeah. like, yeah he's feeling better. And I was just like, Oh my God, that's such a little kid thing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but I love that. It was so poisoning. <laughs> so do you want to rate the movie out of 10? Uh, I'd probably give it a nine out of 10. It was pretty good. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest surprise for me, like having gone back and watch this for the first time in like 25 years, I always liked this movie. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize, like I say, how perfect it was. Like, I, like, I feel like the casting was perfect. The pacing was perfect. It's perfectly authentic. It isn't just, you know, some Christmas movie. It's it's about seeing the world through a child's eyes, and especially during a simpler time. I think it's perfect. I will give it a nine and a half out of ten. I was going to say, is it perfect? Ten out of ten? No, yeah. nine and a half. Nine and a half is still pretty strong. I, I think even my nine was pretty strong. Yeah, I, I I I'm leaning toward a ten, but I thought I'll go nine and a half. So cool. Um. You know, actually, one last thing I just wanted to ask you before we move on. You know, this film is about a lot of stuff, but at, at its core, it's about a child that wants and receives his favorite Christmas present of all time. So I got a question for you, Derek. Yeah. Looking back on your life, what is your favorite Christmas present you ever got of all time? Oh, you have one? I want to put you on the um, spot, but I mean... No, no one thing specifically stands out. I know in the early 80s, my parents were, you know, they spoiled us rotten. We were fortunate to, you know, my dad had a really good job and my mom went a little crazy at Christmas time. So when Star Wars, uh, Star Wars toys were available, like we got all the stuff at Christmas. And I, I always remember some of those Star Wars toys as just being like, even just like the, the individual action figure, like having the, 
the Luke Skywalker, the Bespin Luke or the Luke Skywalker in the orange flight suit. Like those were some of the the best things. It's like, yeah, I might have got 10 other action figures for Christmas, but I always remember because Luke Skywalker was mine and I'm sure everybody's favorite character, having the Luke Skywalker action figure was always amazing. So I'm, I'm going to say probably something like the Bespin Luke is is uh, would have been mine. I got to look at this two ways. So presents that I got as a child versus presents that I've received as an adult. Because my all-time favorite Christmas gift I received as an adult, actually. But I'm going to start with myself as a kid. Um, it, it's a little bit of I, like a, I'm a true Canadian. Just like the, the Genie Awards, it's a tie. Okay. I have two favorite gifts that I got as a, as a kid. First, I got this full set of these Marks dinosaurs. I used to love dinosaurs when I was a kid. And I was eight years old and my grandparents got me this set. And it came with like two mountains and a river and a whole bunch of dinosaurs. Loved that gift. The second one that always stood out to me was this yellow Lego castle set that I got when I was 10. <laughs> Looking back on it, and I've Googled it ever since, it's super like tame compared to the Lego of today. Oh yeah, no kidding. But let me tell you at the time, you know, for Christmas in 1979, like it was amazing. But both those gifts pale in comparison to the best Christmas present that I ever received. It was just last year, Derek, my wife, my, my loving wife, knowing me better than anyone else and knowing the things that I love, she got me a private one-on-one -on -one virtual session with Henry Winkler. Right. I thought Honestly, Chris, I thought you were going to say a neck full of gold. <laughs> oh, I love the neck full of gold. But uh, yeah, meeting Henry Winkler was amazing. Like I, I awesome. got to tell him how much he meant to me and how how it was this Christmas gift from my wife that I was able to meet him and, and tell him why he was my idol. And you know what his response was to me? He's like, no, this is a gift to me. He is the greatest all-time celebrity. That's a good He's, answer. He is one of the nicest human beings I've ever met in the world, but oh my God, love that guy. Anyway, so let's, uh, what do you say we have some? Fun with Caveman. All right, Derek, so um, it was my movie this week, so it's over to you. What do you have for us this week in terms of All having right. fun and trivia? All right, well, we're going to do a little game we like to call Pick the Flick. synopsis then pick the flick you get the year pick the flick all right how what uh what are the parameters of this one all right so the movie we watched tonight was called a christmas story yes there is. are a lot of movies that have the word story in the title like oh. a ridiculous amount so i've tried to pick some films that i think you should have a pretty reasonable time i identifying from the synopsis i'll give you the year and the synopsis of the film you tell me the title they all have the word story at some point in the title and there's two parts to this okay first 10 questions are just exactly what i described then i'm going to give you five bonus questions at the end and i'll tell you about those when we get there but the first ones they all have story in them so you ready sure and let me finish reading the whole question because some of them you may know immediately based on some of this other stuff so Nice. Again, these are really easy. I think you're going to get 10 out of 10. So from 1961, two youngsters from rival New York City gangs fall in love, but tensions between their respective friends builds towards tragedy. West Side Story. 
Yes. Yes. See, nice and easy. <laughs> All right. Here's one that my wife was literally watching yesterday from 1984, right in your wheelhouse. A troubled boy dives into a wondrous fantasy world through the pages of a mysterious book. Oh, that's the never-ending story. Yes. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. All right. Same year, 1984, right in your sweet spot. An African-American officer investigates a murder in a racially charged situation in World War II. That was a soldier's story. Yes, it was. I don't remember the name of the actor that was in it, but I remember he was quite critically acclaimed at the time. So, yeah. Uh, All right. Uh, This one, a little newer, but a pretty big movie from 2019. So quite recent, nominated for Best Picture. An inclusive and compassionate look at a marriage breaking up and a family staying together. Is it Marriage Story? Yes. Yes, it is. I watched that. It was with Adam Driver, right? Yeah. Yeah. My wife wanted to watch that and we watched it. It was was quite good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. All right. 1991. With the help of a talking freeway billboard. A wacky weatherman tries to win the heart of an English newspaper reporter who is struggling to make sense of the strange world of early 1990s Los Angeles. Oh, that's L.A. story. Yes, it is. Yes, with uh, Steve Martin and Steve Martin. Uh, and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Yep. Big comeback for her. Yep. All right. This is probably the easiest one I'm going to give you all night. Okay. 1995. A cowboy doll is profoundly threatened and jealous when a new spaceman action figure supplants him as top toy in a boy's bedroom. Yeah, that's Toy Story. Of course. All right. Uh, This one, maybe, maybe not. From 1975, an X-rated film. A photographer's lover takes her to a chateau where she is, like other women there, naked Humiliated by whipping, sexual abuse by men, etc. When she leaves, her lover gives her to his much older stepbrother. Oh man! I, Apparently, no. it was a well-known and quite controversial movie in 1975, which is why I included it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's called "The Story of O." Oh yes, yes, yeah, it was a controversial film back then. Here we go. I knew that would be a hard one. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Uh, 1940, going way back, mm-hmm. when a rich woman's ex-husband and a tabloid-type reporter turn up just before her planned remarriage, she begins to learn the truth about herself. Is that Philadelphia Story? It is the yeah. Philadelphia Story. Yeah, Cary Grant, right? And yeah. Catherine Hepburn? Yeah. Yep. Again, Jimmy Stewart I, was in that one too. That was a good movie. Yeah, I figured it was a it was it's a classic. So I figured yeah. you had a good chance of that. All right. Speaking of classics, 1970. Okay. A boy and a girl from different backgrounds fall in love regardless of their upbringing, and then tragedy strikes. Oh, it's love story. Yes, it is. Yeah, she got sick and, and died. Sorry hey, to spoil hey, it. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Uh, the last one of our, our first 10 here. So this is from 1965. Again, mm. things is easy. An all-star, large-scale, epic movie that chronicles the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's um, the greatest story ever told. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Right. You went 9 out of 10 on those. Okay. Ooh, not bad. Bonus five bonus questions. Okay. Bonus questions. All right. 
Each of these five movies mm-hmm. has the word story in its subtitle. Oh, these are geez. all movies that have subtitles. The story part is in the subtitle. Okay. Ooh, wow. These are a little bit tougher. So uh, good luck. All right. And, and anyway, so the first one's from 2004. A group of misfits enter a Las Vegas dodgeball tournament in order to save their cherished local gym from the onslaught of a corporate health fitness chain. So I haven't seen this one, but I'm pretty sure it's dodgeball, an underdog story. Oh, very close. We'll give it to you. Dodgeball, a true underdog story. Oh, a true underdog story. Okay. Again, like I said, I haven't seen it, but. Oh, I figured you hadn't seen it, but it's it's pretty popular. Okay. This one's going to be a little tougher. I'll, I'll give you a hint straight up. This one is a comedy as well. It's from mm-hmm. 2007. Okay. A singer overcomes adversity to become a musical legend. Oh, I feel like I, I haven't seen it, but is it? Isn't it like Dewey? Cox. Yep. yep. Uh, oh, frig. That's the subtitle. The Dewey Cox story is the subtitle. What's it called? Wasn't it like Walk Hard or something? Yes! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Walk Hard. It was like John C. Riley, right? Yeah. 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 All right. I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with it. I've, I've, I've oh. never seen it. Yeah. I remember this, him with the hair. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This one's from 1987. Okay. The new owner of a sinister house gets involved with reanimated corpses and demons searching for an ancient Aztec skull with magic powers. Okay, so I'm pretty sure, I, again, I've seen the original, or the, the first movie. This is a sequel. It is. And the original was really good. I've not seen this one, but is it House 2, the second story? Yes. 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 Nice. And I love that the story plays in two levels in this mm-hmm. one. So, mm-hmm. All right. From last year. 2002 this movie explores 2002 uh, pardon me 2022 okay this movie explores every facet of a musician's life from his meteoric rise to fame with early hits to his torrid celebrity love affairs and famously depraved lifestyle and all of that should be in air quotes oh man I, I, I I don't think I know it's a satire, if that helps. Is it weird, the Al Yankovic story? Yes. yes. <laughs> I remember you talking about that one. I haven't seen it yet. That's with Daniel Radcliffe, right? Sure is. Yeah, I remember you talking about You said it was quite good. It was quite good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you had, thank you for the clue. That helped. Yeah, okay. This one you should get, but mm-hmm. I had to really tweak the description so that it didn't just give it all away, but I still think you're going to get it. This is our last one. Mm-hmm. In a time of conflict, a group of unlikely heroes band together on a mission to steal the schematics for their enemy's ultimate weapon of destruction. What's the sub? It's Rogue One, I think. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. What's the subtitle there? Is it? Was it just a Star Wars story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Didn't they use that again with Solo, a Star Wars story? It became kind of a thing. I don't know, but this yeah. one was. So I figured oh, we had to end man. it on Star Wars. Nice. Right? This is our last show of the year. We had to end it on Star Wars. So nice. That was a, yeah, that was a good. Really well. Yeah. You did I, really well. You only missed that story of oh, other than that, you did. Yeah. You got you went. You know, nine for ten in the top and five wow. out of five on the. And bottom. I did much better than I thought I would do. So that was yeah. That was no, good. but I you gave worried. me a couple of clues though, so well, you kind of yeah. helped me out. But yeah, got to do our part. But so. Uh, yeah, so we mentioned it's time for some holidays around here. Much deserved holidays. 
my friend. So this, that's a wrap. That's a wrap on season eight, man. Amazing. So uh, Derek, you and I will be back in the new year to kick off season nine of the podcast. So between now and then, what do you say? We'll post some best of shows, you know, featuring the fun with caveman segments. So we'll do that. I love it. I love it. Awesome. So uh, we'll have a good time. We'll take some time away and then we'll be back in the new year. And until then, I'm Chris McBrien. That's Derek Myers. And we're both saying thanks a lot for sticking around for eight seasons here on the podcast, watching or listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Thank you.